are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing." Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. All right. Thank you both. Great to hear scripture this morning and get into Romans chapter 7. And Brecken, I have known since Brecken was, well, before you were even born, Brecken. <laughs> so I'm starting to feel quite old myself as the years go by here. Great to celebrate First Communion and Brecken and our fifth graders. They're part of our ministry here. You know, kids are not just waiting in the wings or on the sideline, but they are carrying out the mission of the church. And Brecken, thanks for reading. We're on the home stretch of Lent now, the 40 days that are taking us to Easter. Next week is Palm Sunday, and there will be palms. So we're going to have some fun here next week, celebrating both in our online service and here in person. We also are going to have a special guest with us in the first part of the service, and that is to introduce the seed company to us as a congregation. This is what we've been preparing for, this major initiative of the Y Church in 2021. We have committed to translating the Gospel of Mark into a new language that has never had the Bible before. As Josh shared a little bit, there's 100,000 people who speak Timbaro, and many of them are followers of Jesus, and yet they have never had the Scriptures in their own tongue. And so what a special thing to be part of, as we get to partner with the seed company and give them the gift of God's Word. And so I hope you'll be with us next week, either here in person or online, as we start into Holy Week together. I'm also really looking forward to where we're going to be in Scripture this year for Holy Week. All three services, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Many consider Romans 8 to be one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. And through Holy Week, we're going to get to see why that is. As we prepare for Romans 8, though, we don't want to miss the significance of chapter 7 and what we have before us today. In fact, I remember reading these verses 
when I was a kid, when I was a student, and I remember it so clearly, I went to our bookshelf this week and I grabbed my Bible that I got when I was about 13. My parents will recognize this. They signed the inside cover and wrote a message. And this too is a life application Bible. So it's the very Bible too that we were giving to our students earlier in the service. And so I took a little picture of the page of Romans 7 to share with you because that lower left portion is our reading for today. That's Romans 7, 14 to 25. And I remember reading this and thinking, the Bible really gets it. The Bible gets me. And I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise, right? I mean, God wrote the Bible and he gets me. And so this would make sense. But I remember thinking that Romans 7 is one of those places that just jumps off the page and instantly dives into your heart and resonates with where you're at. Douglas Moo is a scholar who, by the way, serves on the translation committee of the Bible that we often use here, the NIV. Doug Moo calls Romans 7 one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. And I think one of the things that makes it so famous is that it is so relatable. What we just read with the Holshers puts into words what we can feel so intensely at times in our life. That I'm in this spiritual battle, this tug of war between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing. And I wonder with our kids here with us in worship and our fifth graders, how many of you have heard my dad, Dan, tell the turtle story? This is a story he tells in Sunday school, I think, every year to illustrate one of the lessons. And he tells this story. He does a great dramatic retelling of it. I'll just be brief. But as he was growing up, he went on a day trip with his mom to Wadena. Anybody grow up near Wadena? A few of you? Yes. Small town, Minnesota. And she was at the dress shop, and he was going to go over to the Ben Franklin Five and Dime store. And he had kind of premeditated this whole thing. So he had a plan. He knew that the Five and Dime store was selling little baby turtles that you could pick up and take home as a pet. And he wanted one so badly that already at home he'd planned this out and he got one of those little plastic Easter eggs and he had punched air holes in it. And when his mom was in the dress shop and he was in the Five and Dime and nobody was looking, he scooped out one of those baby turtles. You know, their shell's about the size of a quarter. And he put it in that Easter egg and stuck it in his pocket and he walked out the store. And no sooner did he get back to the dress shop, he turned five shades of red and it was just eating away at him. And he knew what he'd done was wrong. So he asked his mom if he could just run back to the store one more time. And he took off like a jackrabbit and got over to the turtle tank and dropped that baby turtle right back in the tank and walked out. And the thing about my dad's turtle story is that it's a story that every kid can relate to, one way or another. I mean, every adult can relate to. We all have these stories too. And that is what Romans 7 is about. Now, before we look at the text and apply it, there's just one technical Bible study kind of piece that we should draw out briefly. You see, Romans 7 isn't just one of the most famous chapters in Scripture. It's also... Many call it the most difficult and debated passage in all of Romans. And you might hear that and think, well, why would that be? When we just read this, this actually sounds a lot less complicated than some of the other readings we've had. You know, this really seems to make sense. But there is one major question that hangs over this passage, and that is, 
is the I in these verses, so it's Paul writing in the first person, and is the I Paul as a Christian? Or is this a kind of flashback to his life as a Jew under the law before he became a Christian? And at first I'm reading about this this week and remembering it from seminary, and I'm thinking, well, maybe we can just skip this whole part. You know, let's, let's see if we can just go after the text without getting into this whole debate. And I was reading Doug Moo's commentary, and he said this. I'll paraphrase. One can preach this passage in its basic intention without even getting into it. And I read that, and I thought, yes, I'm off the hook. We're not even going to mention it. And then I read the very next sentence that he writes, and it says this. I'm going to quote it for you. Few of us, however, would be satisfied to leave this question unanswered, and even fewer congregations will be satisfied with sermons that fail to deal with this matter. And so I don't know if you'll agree with Doug Moo on that point. You maybe wish I read something else. But at any rate, I felt like, let's not ignore it. Let's at least talk about it for a couple minutes. We'll keep it brief. And here is why this debate is actually so important. Because it has everything to do with our daily life and experience as Christians. You think about this question that we're asking. Is Romans 7 describing the struggle of a Christ follower? Or is it describing the struggle that we have been rescued from in Christ? You know, there's a definite change of tone. You come back next Sunday for Palm Sunday, we step into Romans 8. The Holy Spirit takes center stage. So that's the question here in Romans 7. Is Paul speaking as a Christian or as a Jew under the law who's trying to be good and follow all the rules under his own power? Now the early church fathers, they all said it was the second one. They said it's Paul referencing back to his life before he met Jesus, but that the cross sets us free from this kind of struggle. But then you get to Augustine, And later to Luther and Calvin. And they said, no, it's the first one. Paul is writing as a Christian, describing the ongoing struggle that we can still feel as we follow Jesus. And so all through church history, and still today, you will find really solid biblical arguments to support both of these perspectives. This week in preparation, I read two technical commentaries on this. One went one way, one went another way. And occasionally, we just have to realize in our study of Scripture that that is just where we land, and we should probably hold our position loosely. Now, there's many things that are clear, and in those instances, we hold a position firmly, and yet sometimes there's just not that clarity, and so we should tread more carefully. And yet in all this, here's the consolation. What is not disputed is the main point of the passage And answering that question is not the main point of the passage. Here's the main point. That the law, or let's put it in our language, being good and being a rule follower cannot accomplish our salvation. But rather, we are saved by what? We are saved by casting ourselves on the grace and mercy of Christ. That's what we've been studying all through Romans. And that's what we're going to unpack in this passage And yet the other question can't be ignored. And so at the risk of oversimplifying the matter, I'm just going to let you know where I land because it colors everything then as we approach this passage. 
I'm a little more convinced of the position of Augustine, Luther, and Calvin. I think it's the more natural reading of the text as we're working through Romans that Paul is describing, yes, how a Christian still struggles with sin. Now, not constantly like this, but that sin can still rear its ugly head in our life, even though it's been defeated at the cross, and it can still certainly throw temptation our way. So little Danny, little boy, he knew that Jesus loved him. He knew that he was following after Jesus, and yet he just wanted that little pet turtle so bad at his house. (laughs) So that's the perspective that I bring. And I've titled our message today, The Battle is Real, The Victory is Won. So with that aside, now let's look at the text and look for some application. Paul says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. You see this contrast that sets up the whole passage. And the law is an important Bible word that might initially sound a little foreign to us. Yeah, we know the word law. We know it from the courtrooms in our own country. You can study law, practice law, people can break the law. But what is the law in the Bible? And sometimes you might even see it in a Bible with a capital L. Well, for the Jewish person, which is what Paul was and Jesus was and most of the people of the Bible, for the Jewish person, the law was the collection of commands that God had given to his people in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the reason that God gave them the law is that sin had entered the world at the Garden of Eden and had broken off our relationship with him. And so the law is given as a bridge back to God, that by keeping the law, people could live in relationship with God and in good relationship with one another. So God gave the law to the people of Israel, a people, by the way, that didn't earn it, or he wasn't playing favorites. He just chose them out of his mercy, and that they then would be a nation that he would use to bless and reach all the other nations of the world. So the law is good, and it is given with this purpose in mind, but then what happens? It's the story of the Old Testament. Israel can never consistently and continually keep the law. They just repeatedly fall into these patterns of sin and they worship other gods. They allow for immorality and injustice to sweep across the land. And they're essentially time and again running away from their relationship with God. And the law becomes a mirror that shows us how bad it really is. The law is a mirror that says sin is a problem that we can't get a handle on. Like we read in Romans 3 several weeks ago. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's like a basketball hoop that's two stories up in the air and you're supposed to make every shot. Now how do we apply this today? Since we're not Jewish, we're not living under the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. Well, I can tell you this. That the law and living by the law still abounds in our time, even as our culture moves further away from Christ. I was on a call this week with a YMCA leader in another state, and we were discussing some proposed changes to the constitution of the global YMCA. And in a nutshell, the proposed changes 
soften and downplay the Christian mission of the Y that have sustained this organization for 176 years. And this other leader said to me, she said, well, I don't really care how the mission is worded as long as the Y pursues peace, love, and justice. And I wanted to say in that moment, but where do peace, love, and justice come from? You can't just grab them out of thin air. These aren't human constructs. But they are Christian principles that come from the very character of God. We live in a time and place that thinks it can say, here's how to be good without needing God. It is moralism without a moral lawgiver. That if you and I will just try to do our best and be a little bit nicer to those around us, then we will reach our true potential of human flourishing. And I'll tell you what that is. It is a ship without an anchor. And we will try harder and harder in our culture to prescribe how to live, and we will get further and further away from the things of God. But that's the world, that's the culture. How about the church? Can we experience this? Can we fall prey to this too in a little bit different sense? This idea of trying to live by the law. Well, you can answer the question for me. Of course we can. And then it's not humanistic ideals, it's religious rules. We can all probably sing that Christmas song, making a list and checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty and nice. And as Christians, we can end up doing this, where we live by the law instead of by grace. And our problem then isn't trying to be good without God, we're trying to be good enough for God. And that is something called legalism. A friend of mine grew up in an immigrant community in Germany. He's now a pastor. He's one of my best friends in ministry. And I remember him telling me the story of growing up in a very strict, legalistic church culture. And one of the many rules that they had, especially for teenagers, was absolutely no dancing. There was a zero-tolerance policy for dancing. Dancing was not allowed, and he remembers one of the elders wagging his finger saying, dancing is not biblical. Well, one of the smart Alex in the youth group, there's always one, had been reading his Bible. And he raised his hand and he said, excuse me, Mr. So-and-so, but 2 Samuel 6.14 says, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And my friend tells me that a hush came over the youth group as they all awaited to see what would happen next. And the church elder looked down his nose at the boy and said, David wasn't dancing. He tripped. (laughs) He was dead serious. We will come up with our lists, won't we? We will find a way to justify it and make it law. And one of the major concerns of Paul is to let the Romans know that the law cannot save us from sin. In fact, the more we look at the law and to our own righteousness, the more we feel the depth of our sin. And that's where Paul is taking us in this passage. When we come to faith in Christ, he's saying we find ourselves kind of caught between two places, between two realities. In verse 15, he says, 
I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And later in verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And Martin Luther had a famous phrase in Latin for this, simul justus et peccator. Some of you just had a flashback to Lutheran confirmation class. Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously, that's where, so our word simultaneous comes from simul. Simultaneously, at the same time, justified and sinner. Luther was saying, at the same time, I'm righteous and I'm a sinner. And this is the tug of war of Romans 7. This is the spiritual battle that can assail us as we seek to follow Christ. And why does this happen? You know, Paul is saying in this passage, I agree that the law is good. It's what I want to do. So why do I end up doing the opposite? And that's where Paul answers his own question. And he talks about the residual effect of sin that still clings to us, that still indwells us. The cross is decisive. When we place our trust in Christ, that is where I am justified and declared righteous before God. The cross has vanquished the power of sin, but it does not mean that sin has vanished. When Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse, the Civil War was effectively over. But did you know that there would still be six more battles before word finally got around and all the fighting stopped? And I think that's a picture of where sin is at in our life. Its days are numbered. Its vice grip has been loosed, but it can still do damage. And Paul says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. And you know, one of the most freeing things in all the world is when we can get to this place and acknowledge our own sinfulness. That on our own, we don't have a leg to stand on before God. Paul says, there is no good in me. And it's so different from what we tend to hear in the world, where we're told that there's just this natural spark of goodness in all of us. And if we could just uncover a little bit more of it, the world would be a better place. And we would have more love and more peace and more justice. I was a kid in the 90s, and I remember being in elementary school, singing this song by Michael Jackson, Heal the World, Make it a Better Place for You and for Me and the Entire Human Race. Right? What this song is saying is we just got to try a little harder. Here's the imperative. We'll prescribe it. We can make the world a better place. And I contrast that to where we're at today. And I think Generation Z has maybe finally called that bluff. Because now we have an artist like Billie Eilish, incredibly talented, singing this kind of song. What do you want from me? Why don't you run from me? What are you wondering? What do you know? Why aren't you scared of me? Why do you care for me? When we all fall asleep, where do we go? Notice it is all just questions. 
A ship without an anchor has no answers. My generation pretended it did. This generation is done pretending, but here we all are, still searching for answers. Paul says in verse 21, Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. And when we spend time in God's word, there is such joy in these pages. You know, it might be a mirror that tells me the ugliness of my sin, but it also shows us the beauty of what God intends for us. And so we can say with the psalmist, For I delight in your commands because I love them. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And so if you have not found some kind of pattern of spending time in Scripture on your own, not in church, but on your own, at home, or at work, or at school, I just beg you to find a way to do it. Just find a few minutes to steal away and nourish yourself in God's Word, just like you would nourish your body at breakfast or lunch or dinner. Because this is what leads us in paths of righteousness. And not only that, but it also brings us to the end of trying to do it ourselves. Paul says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. You see, the Bible understands us better than we understand ourselves. And we get to the end of this passage. And Paul finally throws his hands up in the air and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And you have to picture it's like a man who is dying of thirst in the desert and he has now laid down to die. And then we come to the crowning moment of Romans 7. Fresh water comes to his lips and he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law brings us to this moment and Jesus Christ brings us through it. My brothers and sisters, I trust that the battle of Romans 7 is not unfamiliar to you. And I want to ask you here at the close of the message, where is it in your life that you are feeling the stinging defeat of sin? Where is it in your life that you need deliverance? Where is it that you need to finally get to this place where you throw up your hands and you cry out to God to save you from yourself? The message today is that when you do that, He will come every time. He already has. And He declared victory for you at the cross. So that no matter how you and I might be struggling today, that you are fighting a winning battle with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords by your side. Let's pray together. Lord, what is left to say 
that your word has not already said for us. We love your commands. We want to live rightly for you. But Lord, we just struggle in so many ways across the years of our life. And so we ask you, Lord, simply that you would come to our rescue and set us free from the sin that would overwhelm us. And where we're blind to see it, Lord, would you bring things into the light? Would you deliver us so that we might walk in your good ways to the glory of your holy name? We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm going to invite our First Communion families to come back forward to your stations. And as we settle into our places here, we're reminded of where Paul finishes this triumphant note saying, who will deliver me? And he says, thanks be to God, it's Jesus Christ. He's done it for us at the cross. And so we gather around this table now, very significant here with fifth graders receiving communion for the first time. And we remember that on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, he gave thanks for it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples to eat. And he said to them, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the meal, Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks for it and gave it to his disciples to drink. And he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So the table is set for each of us, those at our tables and our students and families up front. Josh and I are going to visit table to table and celebrate with these family units. And at congregation, as you are ready, as we're singing and reflecting, I invite you to take one of those uh, communion cups and you'll find the wafer on the top and then the juice underneath. And as we receive this meal, may you find the assurance of the forgiveness of all your sins. That is what Jesus gives to you. And may you too find yourself saying, thanks be to God for the gift that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's take and eat of this meal now. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.